I believed the Mormon system of obedience to laws and ordinances would secure my forgiveness. So writes former Brigham Young University professor Lynn Wilder. We've got her picture, if we could get that slide. She explains, for eight years I had been a professor at Brigham Young, the flagship school of the Mormon church. My husband Michael was a high priest, a bishopric member, and a high, and a high counselor. He was a temple worker, a seminary teacher, and Sunday school president. Our first son, Josh, and second son, Matt, had served the church's obligatory two-year evangelizing missions. Our daughter, Katie, pleased church leaders as well with her faith in Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith. I looked down on Christians who followed the Bible. They had part of the gospel, but I had the fullness of it. I kept the laws and ordinances of Mormonism. I believed the Mormon church secured my eternal life. Always active in the church, we raised our four children in the faith in Indiana, serving untold hours in church uh, callings and reading Mormon scripture and tithing and attending meetings and keeping health code and doing genealogy so we could redeem the dead in the temple. These were a few of our offerings to the Mormon God. Like the Pharisee in Luke 18, I thought I knew him better than others through the exclusive instruction that I received in the temple. The Mormon system of obedience to laws and ordinances would secure my forgiveness. Human religion has flourished for thousands of years, and it comes in a thousand different flavors. It's written into our DNA, into our race memory as humans, that we must be better than we are, that things ought to be different, that we must perform, we must have God's blessing. And Jesus confronted human religion during his ministry. Indeed, he confronted the entire human religious project. And we read about one such encounter in the 11th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. I'm going to read verses 37 to 46 and then pick it up again at verse 52. This is God's Gospel. When Jesus had finished speaking... A Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. And then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the, the outside of it Make the inside also, but give what's inside to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter, but without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which men walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered Jesus, Teacher, when you say these things, that's about the Pharisees, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you. 
because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. And when Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. We see here a confrontation between Jesus and human religion. We can observe a number of things. For one, we can note that religion promises a measurable, quantifiable spirituality. Uh, Religion sees that there are basically two ways to live. You can live in accordance with our rituals and commandments and and ordinances and rules, or you can live a godless life, uh, you know, which is everything that's not this. Um, There's irreligion and there is religion. Uh, The Pharisees saw this dichotomy sharply. They were there, there were all the bad people, including the Gentiles and the non-observant Jews and the insufficiently observant Jews. And, and then there were the Pharisees and the scribes. They had thousands of rules that structured how they lived their life in vast detail, down to, to explaining exactly how many steps you may walk on the Sabbath day without working and thereby breaking the Sabbath. They had a rule for everything, a hundred rules for many things. And for the average person, such endless rules were crushing. Jesus said, you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And besides that, you don't even help them, he says. For the Pharisees and for the scribes, there were those who kept all the rules and those who didn't keep all the rules. Two kinds of people, religious and irreligious, and the rules served a purpose. On the one hand, they built a fence around God's law so that you couldn't accidentally sin because you were focused on making sure you obeyed all the laws that kept you from getting even close. Uh, But functionally, they did something far more for and to the religious person because they made spiritual progress measurable. Religion offers measurable progress in spirituality. Notice how the Pharisee was watching Jesus to see whether he kept all of their rules and regulations. He was shocked. The Pharisee noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal was surprised. A better translation would be shocked, appalled. His surprise implies criticism of Jesus. Jesus is not as righteous as the Pharisee because the Pharisee does the ceremonial washings that are prescribed in all of their rule books before he eats, even though they're not in the Bible. And he therefore believes Jesus is a sinner. Jesus is the wicked one. He is the righteous because he washed his hands and Jesus did not do the ceremonial washing. For the Pharisees, this was all about ritual purity before God, and Jesus had just been exposed as one who lacked ritual purity. He saw this, Jesus saw this as just throwing a lot of extra burdens on the backs of God's people, more rules that are going to keep them measuring their progress spiritually by how well they are at rule-keeping but neglecting the real heart of what God instructs in his word. Realize that Jesus isn't making an issue of the hand washings in its own right. It's harmless. You know, it's just water. But what he sees is the judgmental spirit 
behind it. The confrontational spirit, the readiness to speak up and judge someone and point out that they're not obeying all of the man-made rules that they had built around God's law to make sure that they didn't break God's law. At least that's what they were thinking. And Jesus everywhere describes these religious leaders. These were the pastors of Israel, the Pharisees and the, the, and, and the teachers of the law. And he, he says they travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when they do, they make them twice the child of hell they are themselves. See, religion, by focusing on having a measurable spirituality, must by definition focus on externals alone. You know, it, you can't really measure love very easily. It's hard to measure justice, coveting, compassion, being other-centered. Those are internal things, and that's where the real rubber hits the road, and yet... You know, they're upset because Jesus didn't wash. And Jesus says, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. They were only focused on the rules, on the external. And that covered over the fact that inside they were not holy. They were not consecrated to God. They were not filled with the things of God. Uh, the, the cleanliness of things outside the person are such a big concern but it made them hypocrites. Jesus said you give God a tenth of your kitchen spices. It's a bit overkill. They built fences around the wall. And you, you can build these fences and yet they don't address the heart. You know, I, I remember reading a story about a man who planted a garden. And, and he was delighted when the first shoots started to emerge. And every day he would water it and he would weed it. And, 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 and the garden grew until it, he was ecstatic to see plants bearing fruit, all sorts of produce and, 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 and vegetables and, and fruits and all kinds of stuff. And, and yet a few, years a few days later he went to his garden and he was dismayed because every plant had shown some level of evidence that hungry rodents and rabbits had raided his crop. So he decided to build a fence around his garden. A few days later, he again went out to his garden. He saw the same thing. So he put up another taller, higher fence, and then another, and then another. Every time he checked, he found vermin had raided his garden. And finally, he realized the critters could get over, through, or under any fence he built. So he built a massive brick wall with a deep concrete foundation. And then he took a rest. Garden was safe. A few weeks later, he climbed the garden wall, and he was horrified to find that it was choked in weeds. The ground was dry and cracked. Every plant had wilted, and worst of all, his crop was completely gone. He had trusted in the wall's protection, and he had forgotten to tend the garden on the inside. He failed to realize the wall was blocking the sun's rays. He also completely overlooked the greatest threat to his garden because the vermin were already inside when he built the wall. It's the problem of religion. We can build all these laws and all these rules and all these regulations. We can build the biggest wall with the deepest foundations, but the vermin are already inside my heart, and they're already inside yours. And when we focus on the balls instead of on what's inside the garden, then what we end up with is a whitewashed tomb inside filled with dead men's bones. It gives us a way to measure our progress in spiritual growth, and yet it fails us. See, religion is transactional by nature, 
And that's why it fails to change the heart. It's the failure of religion. You know, religion always approaches God with a transactional relationship. You know, in antiquity, this is the way it worked among the pagans. You know, there were gods of the sea and there were gods of love and fertility and harvest. And if you were going to go on a, a journey across the Mediterranean, you would go to Poseidon, the god of the sea, and you would offer a sacrifice or give money or, you know, kill some animal, let the blood fall in front of him, whatever it was that Poseidon demanded in order to give you a safe travel across the sea. It was transactional. You didn't want to have a personal relationship with Poseidon. He was a guy carrying a trident who lived on Mount Olympus somewhere. You, you didn't want that. It, you didn't want a relationship. It was transactional. You were purchasing a blessing from a god through a transaction. And if you were lonely and wanted to, someone to fall in love with you, you would go to the goddess of love and you would offer her whatever her payment was in order to have the transaction in order to fall in love or be fallen in love with. If you were infertile, you would go to the fertility gods and offer them whatever sacrifice they demanded in their temple and they would then supposedly give you what you want. Gods of the harvest would secure uh, your harvest. And so you had this pantheon of gods who all gave you something, but the relationships were always strictly transactional. You know what transactional relationships are. Almost every relationship we have in the Western world today is transactional on some level. Um, you know, I do something to secure some blessing. Uh, you know, you pay a service because it's a, you pay for a service because it's a product you want at a price that you're willing to pay. So you have somebody who changes the oil in your car. Uh, and that is a relationship, a transactional relationship. And so long as they are giving you the product you want at a price you're willing to pay, you maintain that relationship. But if their product changes and is no longer what you want, or if the price becomes one you're no longer willing to pay, you walk away from that relationship and develop a relationship with somebody else to change the oil in your car. It's the same thing with where you buy your groceries. It's the same thing with who cuts your hair. It's the same thing with, you know, uh, 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 the place where you buy your clothing, uh, all of these relationships uh, with the server it, at, at, at the restaurant after worship on Sunday, uh, you know, all of these transactional relationships where the relationship is not the goal, it's a transaction. It's the same thing with uh, universities very often. It's the same thing often with friends, where a friend is, is the fair weather friend. And when the price you have to pay is too high, you get a different friend. Very often this is how people view marriage, where it's a transactional relationship. And so long as you are giving me the product I want at a price I'm willing to pay, I'm in this marriage. But if you change such that I no longer like you, or uh, I no longer want your product, or the price of, of, of being married to you is too high, then I will get an upgrade. Um, it's transactional relationships. People you know, often view churches that way. Um, it's how religion works. It's not about an intimate relationship with God. Uh, you know, I remember reading about an interview with some Carnatic priests uh, in, in uh, southwestern India. And uh, they were talking about all the rituals they did for their gods. And, and somebody asked them, uh, do they long for an intimate relationship with their gods? And they thought it was the dumbest question in the world. Of course not. Of course not. It's transactional. That was the way human religion was then, and it, it still is today. But here Jesus is revealing how even among the Jewish teachers, 
they had distorted biblical spirituality into something that had become just as transactional. These religious leaders were not wanting an intimate relationship with God. Jesus says, you love the most important seats in the synagogues, your greetings in the marketplaces. That was their reward, the recognition from other people, the, 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 the being treated as, as the sacred and the holy. Uh, it was a price they were willing to pay for a product that they wanted. Observing man-made religious rules in order to get respect from other people, the self-confidence that they were better than other people, and the expectation that God would therefore bless them. Because it wasn't about God. It was about them. God was just a transaction. And that makes human religion inherently narcissistic because it's all about me. It's all about us. The goal is to get what we want at the lowest price. It's a self-centered business mindset. Emotions don't intrude. That's what narcissism is. It's a transactional relationship, in this case, with God. And that means that God's love is therefore purchased through what we do. And I hope you realize what that means. What do we call it when a man shells out money to purchase love. And what is that saying about your view of God if you think his love is for sale? With religion, God's blessings become a commodity. God is not the center of a committed covenant union like in a biblical marriage. He's instead approached as if he were a prostitute. The human pays for love with their obedience and their religious regulations and their giving. Notice how the Bible makes a similar connection with idol worship. In Hosea, God accuses idolatrous Israel of a spirit of prostitution and making offerings to other gods. It's in contrast to the husband-wife relationship that God longed to have with his people. It cheapens the worshiper and it insults God. And so Jesus says, woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who were entering this means that religion misses God and therefore fails to change the heart. Jesus calls them unmarked graves that men unknowingly walk over. An unmarked grave was, was something that would make you, a, a grave would make you unclean spiritually because it was, it was, it was like, you might as well have eaten a pork chop. You know, it was a, it was a violation of, of God's law. Uh, it, made you, it made you unclean for a certain amount of time until you went through a bunch of rules. And, and yet one that wasn't marked, people would unknowingly become unclean before God. And Jesus is saying to these pastors, you are unmarked graves. And the people who are following you are becoming unclean before God because of you and your ministry. You can write rules to appear clean, but those rules don't reveal what really counts, which is the heart. Your religious duties just become another cog in the machinery of humanity's never-ending attempt to justify itself. And, and in some degree, we were wired for that. We were created to walk with God in knowledge and righteousness and holiness in the garden, completely naked, known, and unashamed, because there was nothing wrong with us to be ashamed about. And yet, when our first parents were expelled, 
by declaring their independence from God, we were all born outside of the garden. We were all born with that sense of shame because we, we are defective. And, and yet we still have that human race memory that we ought to be different. We ought to be better. Things ought to be better. And so we try to, to do something to make ourselves one of the good people. Why, when somebody tells me, oh, they have their own religion, I say, that's not a solution. That doesn't make it better. Jesus is saying religion is part of the problem, not part of the solution. Humanity's religious project is a failure. And realize that religion can masquerade as Christianity as well. Many of us have been in churches where there was a lot of religion and not a lot of gospel, not a lot of Jesus. Um... Remember, Jesus was talking to pastors in this passage. And St. Paul warned about those who multiply rules in their teaching. Since you died with Christ in Colossians 2 to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These, he writes, are destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. No amount of human rules building a fence around God's law, no amount of human rules giving you a measurable spirituality so you can feel good about yourself, no amount of human rules will do anything, the Bible says. They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. See, religion promises a measurable, quantifiable spirituality where we can then prove to ourselves and to God that we're among the righteous. But it fails to reach God through that, and it fails to change the heart. It's the failure of religion. So, Jesus here gives us a third option. We've seen irreligion, and we've seen religion. Those were the Pharisees' categories. Jesus gives us a third way, a third alternative, a tertium quid, when Jesus establishes a non-transactional relationship with God as Father. This was his purpose in coming, to establish a covenanted, committed relationship with his people, a kingdom in which he'd be our king and go to war against our enemies like sin and death and the devil. Jesus affects our adoption into God's family as deeply loved children. It's a stable relationship, a permanent relationship. You never become a former child. It's a permanent love relationship. Your status as a child of your father is, is established not by your religious performance, but by Jesus' performance for you throughout his 30-some years of life, always obeying the father. That righteousness then credited to you just as Jesus takes our guilt and pays, takes the blame for our sin so that we might be blessed. Bible describes our relationship with God as a marriage between a husband and a wife or as a, a branch that's been grafted into the tree. It's not extrinsic. It's us being united to God through Christ in a, in a permanent love relationship. There's nothing transactional about it. And this explains the religious leaders' hostility to Jesus. It says after this, they, they plotted to, 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 to hurt him. You know, they, 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 they wanted to trap him after this because when you build your life on religion, then somebody starts preaching grace instead. That's pulling the rug out from under your whole life project. 
and you're going to get defensive and you're going to get angry and you're going to push back. You know, the teachers of the law were also insulted. They say, Lord, you're, you're insulting us too. But, you know, once you realize you're the biggest sinner in the room, that we have no righteousness of our own from which to take offense, then we don't take offense the way that the scribes did. Uh, you can tell me I'm a horrible, rotten sinner. Huh. Well, yeah, okay. Not offended. Uh, Christians should be the most humble, gentle, non-judgmental people on the earth. When we see somebody fall, we should say there, but for the grace of God go I. Uh, the Pharisees, the scribes were offended. It humbles our pride to know that we're so wicked that Jesus had to die for us. It humbles our pride to hear that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We want a God who helps those who help themselves. I want to earn it. I want to deserve it. I want to be one of the good people. But Jesus didn't come to save the good people. He came to call sinners. Remember, it was the religious people who killed Jesus. There's irreligious unbelief, and there is religious unbelief. And then there's Jesus, the third way. Neither religion nor irreligion, but a way that establishes a relationship with God as our Father, as His children, in a way that's not built on our performance and is therefore not transactional, but it's built on His scandalous grace and love for us, shown to us in the loving death of His own Son for our salvation. That secure relationship frees us then to confront what's on the inside of the cup. You know, the Pharisees were just cleaning the outside. But when you look inside and you can be honest, if you know your salvation is a free gift, you can look inside and be honest and say, I am really jacked up. God, I need your help. It gives you the gospel board humility to be honest about what's inside. Richard Lovelace talked about a steel bar, a rod that has been bent. And the goal is to make that rod straight again. And there are two ways to do that. One is you can take a lot of force from the outside and, and exert that external force. See my biceps popping. External force and straighten out the rod. And then you've got your straight rod externally produced. But what's true about that rod is if you bend it again, it's going to snap because you've weakened its structure. But there's another way to straighten a bent rod, and that's to put the bent rod in a fire, in a furnace, and let the heat sink deep inside the rod so that the rod itself is glowing oranges and reds with, with the heat operating on the inside, and then you can very easily straighten it out. And when it cools down, that rod is stronger than it was before because now the rod has been properly tempered. That's the difference between religion and the gospel of Jesus, is the gospel of Jesus gets inside the cup and transforms us from the inside out, trading our transactional relationship with God with a real one built on God's crazy love for us, a family bond, uh, you know, <laughs> you, you know that, that can enable us to live God and serve with God with, with true joy. You can quote Reformed theology, but still treat your wife poorly. You can memorize the larger catechism, but have a judgmental spirit. You can give generously of your money, but still look down on the poor and blame them and scorn them. 
Jesus warns us of divine condemnation, saying it's that bad to neglect the weightier matters of the law, like justice and the love of God. He gives us a kingdom of grace that's only entered with the empty hands of faith, trusting in him. Make it your priority, friends, to develop a heart that does justly and loves God, and then you can bring your tithe and be extravagant toward God, because to be extravagant toward God, you're first going to have to be loved extravagantly by God in his grace, loving you, seeing over you, rejoicing over you in song, and freeing you from the tyranny of a transactional relationship into the love relationship of a daddy with his baby. Lynn Wilder was a professor at Brigham Young University. Her husband was high priest, a bishopric member, high counselor, temple worker, seminary teacher, and Sunday school president. The Mormon system of obedience to laws and ordinances was everything to her family. She writes, on a Friday in January of 2006, at her home in Alpine, Utah, I received a phone call from my third son, Micah, that changed my life. Three weeks before the end of his two-year mission, my son Micah called to tell us that he was being sent home early, a horrific disgrace for any Mormon family. He had been reading the New Testament, and there he encountered a different Jesus than the one I was taught about in Mormonism, a God of grace, not of works, so that no one can boast. And Micah was riveted by what he read. To a room full of missionaries at his parting testimony, at his at his parting testimony, Micah had professed faith in Jesus alone and not the Mormon church. He told them he had found a deep and genuine faith, one that didn't include Mormonism. It didn't go over well. She writes, church leaders told us that Micah had the spirit of the devil inside of him, that, he was sent, that they were sending him home, and that subsequently back in Utah, they should, or we should bring him before the high council for excommunication. Micah pleaded, Mom and Dad, please just read the New Testament. And so we began. And as I read, I became increasingly consumed by reading about this God of grace. I barely ate. I barely slept. It's all I wanted to do. In John's Gospel, I read these words. These are the very scriptures that testify of me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. Salvation didn't require the Mormon church, only Jesus. I began to see clearly that Mormonism taught a different gospel than what the Bible taught. And when I read what Jesus said in John 6, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, I knew I was being drawn. I was being sucked, pulled, conveyed, and transported. In physics, an event horizon is a boundary beyond which the gravitational pull is so powerful that there is no escape. And this was my event horizon. As I read the Bible, my appetite for God grew exponentially. I found myself drawn to him at an ever-increasing speed. And then she writes, on a chilly October evening in 2006, we were in our basement watching the movie Luther. And my heart pounded as I learned of the reformer's struggle against corrupt religious leaders. And I seemed to be facing a similar struggle. Did I believe the Mormon system of obedience to laws and ordinances would secure my forgiveness or did I believe what the Bible taught, that Jesus alone was the way, the truth, and the life? That night, 
speeding toward the point of no return. I lay face down on the carpet, my arms extended, and I cried out to Jesus, I am yours, save me. And instantly, I was sucked over. And from that point on, she writes, God became personal. It was bizarre at first. It was unnerving. I'd never experienced anything like it. Some days, I pulled back to catch my breath. God got me a job I hadn't applied for so that I could leave BYU. He sold our home the day after we resigned from the Mormon church. This must be what Christians call a personal relationship with Jesus. I discovered this Jesus could not be confined by the laws and ordinances of religion. Jesus is real. She says, this is the Jesus my family and I now know. He loves me personally. I devour his word. I find him there. He knows me and he teaches me. And I don't need the laws and ordinances of any church to be saved. Only my beloved Jesus. And let's pray.